Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Hi, this is Ryan Frederick with AWH, and this is a podcast about product called Beyond the Roadmap. And I've got with me today Mike Blackwell, um, who is one of the original product OGs. I just figured out what that even meant because uh, <laughs> somebody used it for me the other day. Took me a while. I had to look that one. Okay, up too. me too. So we have riffed on product for probably a decade yeah. now or more. I think that's about right. And wow. you were one of the first people that I ever started talking to about product in the sort of context of now how we refer to product. Because you were one of the few people that I ran into that actually sort of got it. Because uh, you were doing you were doing product before we called it product. Mm-hmm. And was that like an epiphany for you in any way? Or was that just you figured out how to build decent software and how to you know yeah. engage with users, et cetera? Did you care whether it, was actually it had a, a label or not? Um, no, I didn't. But it was actually a series of epiphanies along the way. Now you were seeing the sort of the amalgamation. I was of all seeing those the mature things. version. Yes, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there were some serious uh, mistakes and learnings that had occurred um, along the way there. So, how did you get into it? How did you get into working on software? Whether you knew what product was called or or yeah. Not? So it's a bit of a crazy story. Um, so it's a little bit of the right place at the right time. I think we have this common background because you were at CompuServe for a period of time too. Right? I was, yeah, for for a hot minute. When I then I realized I didn't like working at a big company. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good sort of thing to figure out. It is. But I actually liked working at a big company for a time, and so I was at CompuServe and AOL for eighteen years. Please do not do the math. <laughs> Um, and so what happened was uh, I got to work on products that I read about in books, and I was in the meeting. So it was just crazy to be able to work on that. Now, we didn't know that we were doing things that would be so substantial to the world years and years later. We were just trying to solve problems that were in front of us, and then I was determining and developing techniques in order to do that. So I end up doing crazy stuff like I'm – I'm on a patent for a Netscape browser version. I'm on a patent for AOL Instant Messenger, also known as AIM. And this is usually the point where some millennial will go, yeah, I remember using that when I was 12, which is great. But the funny thing is the millennials, the the second they actually think I'm relevant and pay attention to me is because of GIF, which was actually invented in Columbus, Ohio, when we were roughly there at the same time. Um, yes, go ahead and jugle it. Uh, you will find that if you jugle CompuServe GIF, that's what's there. By the way, if jugle sounds strange to you, it sounds equally weird when you say GIF instead of GIF because we invented it. So you know the proper pronunciation. Yes, I was there firsthand. I was actually the product manager of CompuServe Information Manager software where GIF was contained within the software. So you, you guys clearly did a very poor job of getting the lexicon and the pronunciation <laughs> at least correct in you know out in the wild yeah well it's funny because for many years it was only available through CompuServe and so w- you were corrected immediately in the halls of CompuServe 
if you said it, if you mispronounced it, you would immediately be corrected. But, you know, CompuServe is not as relevant. And then it was bought by AOL and everything else. People don't even realize where it came from. But, in fact, I sat there with the inventor of GIF and worked with him every day. His name is Steve Wilhite, in case you're wondering. The one thing I remember about CompuServe, and even CompuServe people after I wasn't there anymore, such a nice group of people. I mean, smart, capable, et cetera, but also a very nice group of people, just genuinely nice. Yeah, it was nice and very driven group of people, too. We all knew we were working on something really cool at the time. Um, by the way, they're having a 50th anniversary again. Please don't. You, I know you're doing the math again, but the, a lot of those nice people are actually getting together because we knew that we had sort of done something extraordinary at the time. So it was really fun to be part of that. Yeah, that's. Um, it was a a breeding ground for lots of people to get their to get their feet wet in product and and software and and you know. Th- what we now know as a craft and a discipline today. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then it was really, you know, how do we, how do we make the experience better? You know, and, and you know, how do we solve, you know, very, you know, micro problems, you know, except which we should not have lost sight of. Right. Yeah. So in fact, I got to tell you the a- AOL, when they bought CompuServe, they really understood that was the, the last piece for me. Again, it was a series of, of epiphanies. But they really emphasized the experience and getting the experience right. And so that I carried with me all the way through. So the fundamentals have been the fundamentals, again, in a series of things that I added along the way. But I generally find that the fundamentals are still the same thing today. And what would you consider those to be when you think about building a product now? Mm -hmm. Let's say we we leave this room and we decide we're going to build a net new product to solve some problem. What are the fundamentals and principles that you think have held up over time and that anybody building something now should be paying attention to? Well, this is the thing. I mean, going to now the place where we re-met, which is at Rev1, we worked on something called Concept Academy because that was born out of my frustration that I kept saying the same fundamentals to entrepreneurs over and over and over again until we kind of productized it and said, okay, let's get the fundamentals. Now, there are fundamental roles that you run into like product managers and salespeople and developers and project managers, etc. But really the fundamentals are things like, hey, do you have actually a target audience? Do you have an addressable market? Do you know how to reach them? Have you asked complete strangers about the thing that you call a product and ask them if they in fact want that product in any way, shape or form that you believe. And I mean strangers, not your friends and family because they love you and they're going to tell you that they like it. But I mean complete strangers in a very um, sort of structured and honest way because those turn into things like experiences and then you have to be doggedly focused on that experience so if you under if you get through the hurdles of just basic i have a product that has been validated that the world actually wants then you've sort of hit the first fundamental and again that one word validation has many parts sitting underneath it and then 
if you're fortunate enough for the answer for that to be yes, then you're going to have to execute on building that product in the extraordinarily. That's when the project management, the product management, good development, and all those fundamentals will kick into place there as well on the execution side of it as well. When you think about different capacities, because you mentioned your role at Rev1 where we're sitting um, recording this episode of the podcast, and for those that are listening that are outside of Columbus, Rev1 Ventures is our primary startup incubator and accelerator. Mm -hmm. And so you've spent time working directly on products. You've spent time advising others on building products. Which do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy them equally? Do you like getting your hands dirty in the product? And do you get similar value out of helping others get their hands dirty and sort of figure it out? Yeah, so the short answer is I like building the product most of all. There's nothing better than being sitting at a Starbucks. You glance over, someone's using a product that you created. They do not know you at all. And you're just sitting there and going, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. It's yeah. infectious. You want to get back there. So for me, that's the thing that really drives me. But on the other hand, when you're in the middle of the slog of the execution and it's freaking hard and it's taken Forever. longer yeah, <laughs> right. than you, you thought it was and you've made mistakes and all the things that happen there. There are moments where I go, it would be nice just to advise people right now and not have to be responsible for this stuff over there. So, and the truth is I also got a lot of fulfillment out of getting, it's, it's sort of a karma thing, right? Which is you're giving back something that you, that someone had poured into you along the way. And so you have the opportunity to, to pour into others and you get the fulfillment of seeing them start to understand the basics as well, because now they're going to be able to get somewhere further faster because you help them do that. So, uh, that, so again, there are there are benefits to both, but both were fulfilling in, under the right circumstances. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's always interesting about mentoring and advising, or you know, however um, we want to refer to it, is what you learned through the process too mm -hmm. of helping to guide somebody else, right? Because you almost always end up walking away from it going, "Hmm, I've never actually, I've never thought about this topic in that way before." Yeah, and advising others gives you the ability to sort of get outside of yourself and your own head and your own perspective around things. Because as you're as you're trying to to transfer some of this knowledge to somebody else often you get a new spin on it yeah. and then you're like, wow, that's an interesting evolution that I'd not thought about around this, this particular area before. That's absolutely right. It, it kind of keeps you humble because just when you think I, I know a lot, right. I figured out a few things along the way, someone comes about it with a new spin. And again, if you're really listening and you're really, you're pondering it, you know that they've come, they've come at it in a great new, fresh way. That's worth you considering as well so um i actually get a a lot of satisfaction out of that as well yeah we were talking earlier before we actually started recording the episode about the transition between exploratory discovery validation hey do i have something worth spending time on mm -hmm. to then let's just call it the, you know phase two of now i've validated that now i have to execute with yeah. discipline and rigor and a friend of mine calls it rhythm and rigor and you know you've got to get into this work cadence now that is very detailed very specific you've mm -hmm. got to deliver very specific things within very specific time periods etc that's a transition 
that trips a lot of people up and a lot of founding teams up and a lot of companies up, yeah. even corporates. It's probably one of the reasons that corporates are not so great at new products and innovation is the ideation part is kind of easy. Mm-hmm. They then often fall down on the validation part and then the execution part, they might even be able to pick up on well. Yep. But these transitions from phases of building a product can really be challenging points for people. Yeah, really tough. So I'll give you some fun facts. We took 300 companies while I was here at Revlon. We took 300 companies through this thing, Concept Academy, just teaching the basics. But the outcome was it was actually a lot of work over about a two-week period of time where you met with us three times. But the outcome was you had to get a survey prepared in a very specific way where we knew that you weren't cheating, meaning you were validating to the rest of the world that you had something the world said, I want it. I want that. It's compelling. And then quick math, the quick number showed that half of the time, 50% of the time, the world went, don't want it. Do not do that. You will waste your time and money if you continue down this path. By the way, a, another that included... One third of the people that came to us had built something. So, and the numbers remained the same. They built it, launched it, and the world was still saying, don't care. So, that's soul crushing. Yes, it is. But <laughs> on the other hand, I can't tell you how many people thanked me and said, yeah, you crushed my soul a little bit, but I'm going to go do something else because you saved me a lot of time and a lot of money to continue on. The other half, what happened was almost completely the rest of the time, the world said, hmm, this is interesting. Could be something there. Yeah. And it, it didn't say, wow, this is awesome, as is, go do that. Almost every single time it said, oh, this is half-baked. Keep baking. And so the great ones went through a validation process, the baking process. Just you got to tweak your features. you got to tweak your experience you got to tweak what it should be in the product that's just assuming that you're a part of the 50 percent and you got through the baking process hard different skill set though that's what we were talking about earlier which is now you're going to hit the execution moment i have in fact defined the product i know what it should be i've done the work to understand the experience from the actual users and now i have to execute I have to build that thing. I mean, it's everything from the leadership to build a team to do that in on, in any respective area, and then run a again a project with it. You got to figure out what is the capital now. Who are the people that you need to do that? That's a very different set of skill set. So that's why I recommend, and most people recommend, you're gonna need someone to partner up with. You can never. This is not a a single person doing this game it, that almost never will work because even if you had the skill set to get through the validation process, the chances are very likely you do not have the skill set to get to the, through the details of executing well. You're going to have to bring some people in in order to help you do that. Yeah. When I think about even the validation part, but certainly the validation part, then over to the you know the production part, the execution mm-hmm. part. Product market fit became a big uh, a big term and a, and and a concept that I always thought was a little misguided. And so I'm writing a book now, and and one of the chapters in the book you know talks about my 
dislike for product market fit as mm-hmm. as a concept because I think it it guides people in a slightly um, in a direction that could give them lots of of false positives. Yep. Because markets don't buy products, customers do. Yep. So people can you know product people entrepreneurs can look at a market and say oh well here's what the competitors are doing etc and then they can build a product that they that seems to have product market fit yeah yet they haven't gotten intimate and close enough with customers yet mm-hmm. and so i think that the objective always should have been customer product fit not market product fit yes right and even if that means your first product you built for three very specific customers, right? To make sure that somebody values this and loves it, you know, et cetera. And I think that, that it's one of the reasons that also people have trouble with that transition is that they're thinking at the beginning too broadly mm-hmm. and not sort of problem specific and narrow enough. Is that, is, is did you see <laughs> yeah, that? So these are, you're, you're tossing me like the greatest softball. <laughs> that you can you can throw to me because i'm happy to help i I appreciate it i really do i am a product guy so i i can't tell you how often i see people who just don't have the skills about what you're talking about here again even the data that i just talked about showed you're absolutely spot on correct which is it's in the baking and what is how do you do that well you have to get out the customer you have to figure out what they're actually doing, what their current experience is. By the way, if you if you match the experience and deliver the product to do that, it's incredibly less expensive than trying to change the experience. But everybody thinks they're magically going to change the way people who've spent millions of dollars setting this up within their company, like somehow you're going to change the way they work. Well, you're not. Apple changes your experience, and that costs them billions of dollars. You don't have billions of dollars, so you're not going to do it. So what you're going to need to do is figure out how they work. You're going to have to match it, and then you're going to have to deliver a product that offers value to them. And that is really hard work. So as you know, I created, we created prototyping software that basically would mimic the product that you want to put in front of people. And it was crazy effective without writing a line of code. It was basically images of what you wanted to be that were clickable spaces to the next page. People thought it was completely real. In fact, I'm at the company that I'm at, Prioroth Now, because the CEO went through 50. That's five zero iterations with something we call Frankenware, a fake thing that he iterated on and iterated on and iterated on. And that's to just get to the MVP moment. And we've been at it for two years, working very hard to execute since because it was just all of that's very hard. But at least from a product perspective, we had that right. We have something that is a really hard, big deal to the world. And we have put our finger right on that. So I'd rather start there every single time than guess ideate and then and then sort of you know hope stick it out there and hope that people are actually going to use the thing no that's your probabilities are extraordinarily no, low in that particular case yeah this is about increasing your odds right mm-hmm. um, it is and um I, I i was speaking at a conference and and because the one principle that i always talk about is get and stay close to customers because if you don't do that you're not you're not increasing your odds you're decreasing your odds right and some guy in the audience stood up and he said, well, 
what if you're a visionary like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or, you know, et cetera. And I just looked at him and I said, are you saying you're a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk? <laughs> and, 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 you know, I was being somewhat facetious with him, but the chances of you being a visionary who can predict what somebody's going to want and making that happen and making that work without, you know, losing your mind in the process and all of the frustration that would go along sure. with that is you're not increasing your odds, right? And I think I look at all of this, especially from a new product perspective and building a new company around it, how do you increase your odds? So I'm laughing because, you know, Steve Jobs, it's like this mythical thing of what he did. And there's a bunch of sort of untruths in there. So this is the guy who built an Apple store in a garage and went through how many iterations to just get a just get the store. So, and this is a guy who would prototype like a maniac and then would be pay attention to ridiculous details and always incremented. Notice that company doesn't go, hey, here's a brand new thing and I'm going to bomb you with it. They increment behavior. They don't try to make wide sweeping changes. So I don't know what people are thinking. They just haven't been paying attention to people who are great at this. He, in fact was the king of prototyping. He, in fact, was always trying to figure out what you were willing to do and what your behavior would be or what your behavior was willing to be. And that's what made him extraordinary. In some ways, we, the world misses that because that was so fundamental. And we don't have that naturally in us to be that fundamental and do it in exactly that way. But that's precisely the way I want to do it. Yeah, and I would even, and I totally agree because I think it's, I think people like that are more mad scientist than visionary, mm-hmm. right? It is, oh, okay, this seems to be working. Well, what if we change this, what happens? Right. Right. And if we try to improve this, what happens? Right. And then it's this yeah. always create a new hypothesis, right? Validate, iterate, create a new hypothesis. By right? the way, it doesn't matter if you aren't the creator of the original thing. I will still do the exact same thing, right? And so no one would say that Steve Jobs and Apple sat around inventing things, conjuring, ideating them. They didn't invent any category. Almost none. Right. They took things and said, oh, I will now make it great. I will do the hundred small things, and I will figure out that would be doing uh, what what ha- that has to be in order for that to be the the breakout potential that that sort of product category always had, and so that was the genius. That was the the magic of you know Steve Jobs and Apple. Why do you think? Because uh, one of the things in my first principle of building products is getting and staying close to customers. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that we're so reticent to do that and uncomfortable doing it? Is it just that dealing with people is messy? Yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, I've found, again, having done this with now 300 entrepreneurs, um, I've, I've really found a sort of a couple of general categories. First, people don't really know how to do it. They haven't really done that before. Okay, so they're just uninformed and educated. That's right. So then they're not going to do it because they don't know what to do. That's right. Okay. So that's and again, I that's where I got satisfaction of saying I'm going to I'm going to tell you the fundamentals. Go through the fundamentals and get the answer to it. The next one is harder and more complex. They don't have the ability to kind of look at the answer and tell themselves the truth and then adjust to it. So it's things like. Hmm, the information said the world went, huh. I mean, not they didn't hate it. They didn't like it. It just says they're not there yet. 
So you've got a few more iterations, a few more increments to necessarily go through before you would want to go ahead and build that thing. We would make people put your features in front of people, and we would make you put the top three features of your competitor. Well, guess what happened a lot of times? The top three features of your competitor were the number one, two, and three. So that means, well, that's good, but apparently the competitors has built and has something in the market, so they're, you're not going to win if you go up against them, if you will. So are you going to listen to the truth of that moment, or aren't you? We had one person cracked me up. I loved it. She was so honest in her dishonesty. She, <laughs> what she did was she, there was a set of features, and the thing that she cared about most was ninth. It came in almost dead last, second to last. And she goes, well, um, here's this set of features that people want, but here's the thing. It came in ninth, but I really like it, so I'm going to do that one anyway. <laughs> well, you, what are, you, are you not listening? Are you not telling yourself the truth? What's going on there? We had all we ne- needed to know whether we should work with that person further. R- right. Uh, but You were well-informed at that point. Yes, we were <laughs> relative to the entrepreneur. But you can see that that's a hard problem. And, you, and it's, it sounds simple because that one was stark in, in its um, characterization. But most of the time, it's much more subtle. And are you going to listen to the data? Are you going to go ahead and make the right adjustments? And take your sort of gut instinct out of it. Because in some ways, it's very humbling. Oh, for sure. So you're going to have to drop your pride in a lot of cases. And that, frankly, could be the second most thing that gets in the way for people. Yep. There was um, an entrepreneur in a startup that I ran into. And he was not having a lot of success. And I said, well, do you have any customers? And he said, yes. And I said, well, who are those? And and he described them. And I said, well, why don't you just double down, triple down in, in that area yeah. and continue to you know take the product and the company in that direction? And he said, well, that's not the company I want to build. And I said, so you'd rather fail building a company that no, and, and a product that nobody wants mm-hmm. versus building a product that you've already got some validation and some traction that, that people in that particular space, you know, will will want it. And he said yes. And I said, I don't know where to go with you now. Right. I, I think you've summarized that perfectly. I have nothing to add. Right. Because <laughs> if you go in this direction, I can help you. And but if you want to continue to go in the direction of the company that you had imagined in your head mm-hmm. and that your ego is now defending, this is going to absolutely fail. And he was, and he was like, "That might be true, but that's that's what I envisioned building." Yep. And it's like, wow, we often get so wrapped around our own the reality that we've painted that if we get feedback that it's different than that, it can just be incredibly hard for us to to switch gears and think about our product, our company being different than what we imagined it was going to be. That's a very yeah. Maybe not surprising because I think, you know, everything, you know, whether it's product or otherwise, you're not going to overcome yeah. the fundamental human, you know, complexity that right. you bring to every aspect of so life. This is the funny moment. This is where the Steve Jobs card gets played. People go, that guy, right. like, like I would see that entrepreneur and they'd be like, I'm going to be like Steve Jobs. I'm like, what? What do you mean? And they go, well, Steve Jobs would just doggedly decide that he was right and that he was the visionary to see it before the whole world would do it, and then he would do it. That is entirely and utterly what he did not do. 
what he did was he took something that he knew the world already saw as compelling and then he made small little incremental features to the point where his engineering team said can't be done he's like what do you mean it can't be done that's what i'm going to do because that's what the world actually wants he was the opposite he knew what the world wanted, not what Steve Jobs wanted. Right. So, well, so where he did push was he pushed his designers and his engineers right. to say, I'm not going to accept the fact that this next evolution can't be done by us. But that's different than saying, Fairy. I'm going to create this new you know, panacea island thing that nobody's ever seen before. Right. And we're not sure that anybody wants, but that's what I envision and that's what I want for everyone. That's yeah. a very different place yeah. to be. And that's exactly right and completely the opposite. So for those of you who say, I'm going to be like Steve Jobs, yeah, no, Steve Jobs was not running around saying, I am the dictator of what the product and the features are going to be. Exactly the opposite. He was intolerant of not being able to deliver the features that the customer wanted. And that is a moment where I'm like, that's a good thing. I need to be a little bit more intolerant at times like that, too. Yeah. So you mentioned prior auth now before. Yep. Yep. So I, uh, because we had a conversation when we ran into each other at an event, you know, a while ago, and, and we talked and, and around the, the product of prior auth now, you're like, oh, man, we've got so many, you know, dependencies because, you know, we work with insurance carriers and, yeah. you know, and we work with healthcare systems, et cetera. And so I knew when we sat down to do an episode of the podcast that I would want to dig into mm -hmm. the challenges of building a product when there are lots of third-party effects, dependencies, roadblocks, hurdles, et cetera. But let's set the stage for everybody that isn't familiar with Prior Auth now. First, what do you guys do? What problem do you solve and who do you solve it for? Okay. So prior auth now, what we do is a prior authorization is what happens when you go to the doctor, your physician. So Ryan goes in and says, my knee hurts, doctor. And the doctor says, well, let's take a picture of that. Let's get an MRI. And then what happens is they go, come back in a week and we'll go ahead and do that MRI as you limp by the... Um, MRI machine on your way out the door. My knee actually did hurt this morning, by oh. the way. But I'm also, but I'm Perfect. also old, so <laughs> yeah. Yes, I better not. Uh, I can't um, make fun of you uh, relative to that. So right, I'll, I'll just move on. <laughs> so um, what happens is you just you sort of scratch your head and say, why am I coming back a week from now when this machine is not even utilized at this moment? And the answer is, they're checking with your insurance company who will prior authorize the fact that they will pay the claim when that claim is submitted after they've done the procedure. So that's happening millions of times in, in America every single day to get prior authorizations between your, it's called the provider or your physician and the insurance company, also known as the payer. So we sit in between and now that sounds simple, but the complexity, and this is the part that we began to talk about, is extraordinary. So you would think, oh, okay, I have Aetna as my insurance. Great. That's what my insurance card says. And I want to get an MRI. Sounds good. And I look at the card and it says, if you want to get a prior authorization, call Aetna. Here is their phone number. 
and then you call them or you go on their website and you spend 20 minutes trying to figure out how to get that prior authorization only to be told sorry you're in the wrong place we use a utilization management company for MRIs called Evacor in this particular example so you'll now have to call them or go to this other uh, portal so just in that small example you will see on average about uh, 50 different insurance companies and the about 10 of them will represent probably 80 to 90 percent of all the prior authorizations that you will have to do. So you can see now the practical problem begin to emerge. I will only go to 10 different websites where I have to process prior authorizations, 10 different websites that I have to learn how they work. It's like trying to put unlimited supply of apps on your phone and it turns out that you'll only use about 10 of them most right. of the time and the right. rest are just noise on your phone so that's what this is like for them as well and so what happens then is when i have the 11th up to the 50th i'm just going to call sometimes i might just fax them because calling turns out to be ubiquitous i can figure out how to do that almost every single time so this is an incredibly complex it's hard to just figure out where do i go and then once I figure out how, how they work slightly differently, so i got to figure out how all these things go. And then in a lot of cases, it falls back to the most inefficient thing that you can do. I have to pay for people to man phones. It's just inefficient. And I'm being efficient on my end when I go and get that prior authorization. So that's what we started. That's the problem that we're trying to solve. We want the ability to, in many ways, we can sort of grab information. If we're in an integrated world, we can grab a lot of information about the case. We can see, oh, someone ordered an MRI for Ryan. So I can go, oh, well, what's his information? Who's the doctor? And what's his insurance information? And where are we going to do this procedure? And we can sort of package all that up into a draft case. I saved a lot of time there. I might even be able to submit it automatically. And now it goes, all right, I know where I'm going to go. Oh, it's Aetna. Mm, no, but this is a case for an MRI. And so I'm going to send that to Evacor. And, I'm, and we will just automatically submit it to Evacor. And what will happen is they'll say, well, we've got some questions for you on the website. But I'll take you all the way to there. So when you click on Prior Auth now in that case, it goes, okay, answer these questions. It's kind of complex. It's things like, you know, why do you need this? What are the, what's the diagnosis that causes you to need that MRI? And as long as you get that, then it goes, okay, here's the answer. That's approved or not, but typically that's approved. And so then you're done. That's done. I'm saving all the efficiencies on both ends. That's the two-sided market we deal with. We deal with the provider and we deal with the payer. And we had to connect those both in a very single consistent way so instead of having to learn 10 websites because that's all you're willing to learn now you will have to learn three because two of them we can't do but eight of them we can and so you will go to prior auth now for that and we will be able to process that so obviously your learning curve goes from months sometimes years to weeks sometimes days and not only that, we did half of the work for you, for you, so we cut the work down. And the same on the other side, the health insurance company is going, hey, this is great. You saved me a lot of cost. If you use the website, it's quite a bit cheaper than if they have to field a call or process a call. So 
what happens is once you begin to get to critical mass, that insurance company is really starting to see some significant efficiency gains or cost savings because you're you're letting computers do the work instead of human beings necessarily to process these things. Are these prior authorizations, are these regulated you know, transactions in any way? Is there, like, do they have to be done in a certain way to um, be compliant with some healthcare sort of statute or, or government regulation thing? Or can prior authorizations, as long as a physician requests it in a, the right way and, and an insurance yeah. company says we'll agree to pay it is that enough or is there more sort of regulatory stuff ensuring <laughs> that it happens in a certain way well let me give you both the parts some of it is regulation and some is just you sort of have to do it practically um so the first big regulation that everybody hears about is something called hipaa compliance and that's just protecting healthcare data so that only the appropriate people are seeing the healthcare data going back and forth. And yep. so, and that's pretty explicit and we know what those rules are. And, you know, there it's just about making sure that you're complying properly. And we have a compliance person that helps the company do that, if you will. So that's straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward for what we should do there. Then you run into the things where, so what happens is, think about it, an insurance company says, look, I want to pay for the appropriate thing. So the doctor will say, I am the decider of whether you need that MRI, Ryan, and they will claim the moral high ground there. And that's good because they are a physician. They're trying to help you get well. But on the other end, the insurance company will also try to claim the moral high ground and say, I do not want Ryan to have to pay too much money for insurance for a bunch of procedures that he didn't necessarily need. They will also claim the moral high ground. And so what they do and the way they resolve that problem is the physician will go ahead and send that through. And what they, on the other end, the person who's answering the question of whether that's necessary is often... In fact, a surprising amount of time, it is a nurse or it is a physician. Depend, like a physician's going to get involved in a $100,000 surgery. They're going to check with a physician. So most people don't realize that one of the greatest employers of nurses and physicians in the country is actually healthcare companies. The insurance co your insurance company is doing that because you can't say no if you're not, in fact, credentialed to be able to say no. And so what they've done is all the studies that occur relative to any procedure or medication, et cetera, what they do is they, they look at that very closely. Uh, the government actually does this, so that's the first standard. There's something called CMS. So the government does this for Medicare, and then everybody sort of takes that first and then sits on top of it. They make their kind of own rules, especially for commercial on top of it. So they will say, we are determining whether that is medically necessary or not on the insurance company end. So that goes through So because they can't just go, hey, this nurse and this nurse, you get to decide whether you think or you think that that's medic. No, that's not so this happening. This is almost like case law from a legal perspective. It is. Okay. So they use um, and they will refer to that case law except if it's been published in journals and it's a widely recognized as a effective and true study that's been done, then they will refer to that like case law. That's almost exactly what they do. So they say, based on evidence, 
this appears medically necessary, we will go ahead and do it. And then what they'll use is clinical decision systems that sit on their end to go ahead and say, I need to make sure that these two nurses that are processing it, process it in the exact same clinical decision way. So they're sitting in front of a set of questions that have to be answered to say, yeah, 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 okay, approved. But so it doesn't take long before you go, well, wouldn't it be better if I just took those questions that are already sort of standardized and put it in front of the user on the hospital or provider, the doctor's office side? And the answer is, yeah, you should. And so that's what's kind of happened. That now is embedded into websites because I, I get efficiency gains there too. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary ones. If I, if I have to employ less nurses and I have to employ less physicians than I, or if, if at least if I cut down their time considerably and make them much more efficient, I have an extraordinary cost savings. So you can see why we, we really are serving both sides. We're trying to get efficiency gains in um, a way that's beneficial to all parties, ourselves, the provider side, and then the payer side as well. Serving a two-sided market can be challenging uh, because you've got to have an equal value proposition or at least close to an equal value proposition. When you are, when you were, or as you're still adding insurance um, mm-hmm. companies, for example, at the beginning, they might not be that fast moving or cooperative in getting you, you know, the integration that you need or the data that you need, you know, et cetera. And then, and then making your product available to their people to be able to go in and, and use it to um, enter in the approvals or the, you know, the um, uh, disapprovals. Yep. How do you balance the fact that one side of the equation might be moving faster than the other side of the equation yeah. because they also have to move in sort of lockstep, right? They do. That's exactly correct. So this is the classic chicken and egg problem, and you're going to have to choose a side. You're going to have to choose the chicken or the egg, but you're going to have to choose to start because the first increment has to pull the second increment. As you said, it is, in fact, you're going to go in lockstep and you're going to keep incrementing once you increment on one side, you're going to have to increment on the other side. So we had to choose, and we chose, in our case, we chose the provider because we knew that the provider would probably pull the payer, the insurance company, because not a lot of people have sort of cracked the nut on the provider side, so on the healthcare system side. So we were, uh, all the things that we talked about earlier, we spent a ridiculous amount of time figuring out what the experience should be to make it consistent and just delightful on the provider side, the person who has to process a prior authorization. And, you know, that worked. Uh, In fact, we were surprised how quickly we just thought it's going to take some time before we start hearing from the insurance companies. We heard from them within a month or two where they were coming to us going, hmm, we hear about what you're doing. We hear that you're very well-liked by the um, provider, um, they care about actually a lot about um, provider satisfaction. Basically, you're, they care that you're that they're satisfied on on the other end more than you. We were surprised at how much they care about that, and so we started to draw them our way. But then we ran into the thing that you always run into, which is you begin to have a dependency. So now we have to get. We're trying to get these 
feeds set up with the insurance companies so that we can increment and then increment and then increment. And the place that we decided to start was in diagnostics. So di- the quick math is there's really two types of procedures. There's something called medical benefits, and then there's pharmacy benefits. Pharmacy benefits is where it's normally administered outside of the office. So think prescription drugs. I'm going to literally go to a pharmacy to pick it up, and then I'm going to administer it myself typically. By the way, the first question people always have is, how are you different than cover my meds? Well, that's the answer. They pretty much focused on the pharmacy benefits side, and they did very well. We love them. We hope to have the same valuation that they got. That would be great. But we focused on the medical benefits side. So that's typically procedures. And the majority of procedures, so it's like eh, the quick math is half of the time, you're doing a diagnostic procedure. Because I'm not going to just start operating on your knee because you said it hurts and I'm old. That is what you said, right? (laughs) That is what I said. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, So they're not going to just start operating. They're going to say, I want to look at it. And so that's, you know, that's... CAT scans and MRIs and EKGs, some wa- some form of sort of getting the information that says I can see what's going on in there, and so then I might pre- I might go to another procedure. So there's a f- you have to go in a in a very specific order uh, of things, and so that's what's that's what's happening. But half of it we went for that high volume, half of it stuff, and that's so. We didn't go for it. Well, we kind of went for everything, but we did that kind of during a learning phase. But we really settled on the high-volume stuff, and we got partnerships that really account uh, for uh, almost 100 different payers, uh, 100 different insurance companies because they outsourced that piece to three main companies, and that's Evacor, um, AIM Specialty Health, and NIA, Magellan, RADMD. I mean, those are kind of all one thing. And that represents a solid 80 plus percent of all diagnostics that happen in the country. So all of a sudden we want, we had a very significant portion of transactions that we could process. And did you know early on that you were going to be able to take the payer side of it, the insurance side of it, and really only have to integrate with three or at the beginning, did you not have that realization necessarily? And you were looking at, Oh, holy shit, we're going to have to integrate with like, hundreds of insurance companies yeah so we figured it out pretty early on okay now what we hadn't figured out early on and this is the hard part those integrations and so uh, in fact i'm going to give you a great learning that anybody listening should really take to heart if you're dealing with a two-sided market as soon as you figure out the dependency and in our case we had a large volume in three feeds that were our dependency as soon as you figure that out it's going to take way more time than you thought it was going to be because you're dependent upon another. So that should be at the top of every list that you have. Start because you control the rest of it. I can always throw time or money or people at a problem on my end, but I can't do that on the other end. I have a dependency. So anything that I can do to get them to get their part done so that I remove the dependency I'm going to prioritize. In fact, I don't even care if I'm going to hire developers and plop them down in their world to go ahead and get this done. I would do that because I need to get that dependency out of the way. 
because once I do that, I have way more control as a company to sort of hit my objectives and, and deliver the product that I want to deliver. Yeah, because even in a case like the payment aggregators and the sort of procedure aggregators, those three, the person that you might make a deal with at those that says, yes, this integration makes sense for us as a company. Mm -hmm. We will support this integration. We will do this integration. That's not necessarily the same people they are going to carry out the integration and making the integration happen. Yep. And so the, in a, the team that's actually going to make the integration happen, they've already got a punch list of things that they're, they're working on, you supposed to be working on, et cetera. So you can also get into situations where just because somebody says, yeah, we're going to do this, doesn't mean that the people who are actually going to care, carry it out care all that much about making it happen and certainly don't care that much about making it happen swiftly because they're just going to show up tomorrow and they're going to do their job irrespective of whether what you want to have happen happens or not. Yep. You got it precisely. My priority list at my company is not their priority list. And I have a dependency now on your priority list. So if I'm halfway down on their side but of course we would be like we're ready to go well this is our top priority it means a lot to my company my startup company right then that you're going to be influenced by that so because they're in in the case of of evacor and even aim i mean evacor is a they're also a billion dollar in revenue company so where do i fit into that into their their world now, so we were constantly, and, and that, again, that really matters. Spend a lot, That's where you should focus on business development and things like that that you think matter less, but they matter more because you've got to get them to prioritize that because it really matters to you. And again, if you can throw resources at that on their end, do it. I don't care what it is. It's going to be worth it. So that's a place to... Th that's where throwing money at a problem is in fact the right thing to do because you just have to get the dependency out of the way because they will not prioritize or they're going to prioritize differently the set of work that you are dependent on. Is there any way to uh, involve the other side of the network, so in this case the providers in that equation, to help increase the priority on the other side of the equation? Absolutely. Not only that, um, that took us a while to figure out. It seems so obvious when you ask the question and when I answer, but that was more effective than our own business development at times. And by the way, that was also helpful. Remember the chicken and egg conundrum, right. we got some pretty big chickens. So we could really use the influence of that. And frankly, we were shocked. It, it speaks to the problem. This is a giant problem that we had validated. And it was such a big problem that we were moving up the food chain much faster than you normally would, which tells you that's how to do it. Find a big problem right. first. And so it was such a big problem that big guys were willing to go ahead and start working with us. And then we were able to use the leverage of them being big to go ahead and influence the insurance companies to go ahead and listen to us sooner. So, yep, that's exactly what you should do. Yeah. When um, on the provider side, mm -hmm. that is also a very challenging space and market that lots of people have tried to build products in the healthcare space, mm -hmm. going to physicians and get it in healthcare systems and getting them to adopt the product in a yeah. new, new process and a new way of doing things. Yep. Most 
fail in that endeavor. They do. And for a myriad of reasons, why do you think that you guys were successful in that area and getting getting that provider buy-in and support when others struggle more or just don't make it work at all ultimately? Yeah, it's really because of our DNA. And by the way, to say that we we are succeeding now, but to say that we succeeded along the way, in fact, it's the opposite. We failed in, in many ways, but th- we failed so quickly and so cheaply. So for example, the first thing we did was we went ahead and we put the interface in front of them on their side and said, here you go. It was better. It would handle multiple, the the 10 websites that we talked about. But what happened was we didn't have all the feeds wired up yet on the payer side. So we put humans, we would process it in a manual way on the back side. Our learning was incredible, so valuable. I would have, I'll, I would do that a hundred times over because yeah. you're overcoming inertia and you're figuring out what your problem is. And even though you're, you're not doing it in high volume, it's not costing you that much. And so you're identifying what is that, that they want and need. Well, yeah. And you're, and you're, you're identifying where the bottlenecks are yes. in the process. That's right. So where do you need to focus from a product perspective? That's right. Right. Because now you're, you're looking at, well, here are the bottlenecks. Yep. We should focus there versus, yep. oh, yeah, there's lots of data and information over here, but actually that's not much of a bottleneck. That's right. So there were moments where we were like, we're failing there. We needed to know that. That's not meeting the needs on the other side. And we were just doing it cheaply and quickly. And so we would fix that. We'd fix it in the product sometimes until we just went pretty quick there. At some point in time, we completely got rid of the service part of it. We then put in the we had the connections now up and running. So what happened was we, of course, at the moment where that occurred, we sort of, it's three steps forward, two steps back, if you will. Yeah. We say, hey, look, here's the thing. And they could tell that there are humans involved in there. And we didn't really, at some point, we just, we didn't even try to hide it. And in fact, they, when we were getting it right, they were like, we love this. Because what I'm really doing is I'm taking work and a cost from here. You've taken the burden from the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the your customer, and you've taken on that burden. I'm for moving it to me. Right. Right. So why would they dislike that? Right. But at some point, we said, we're not doing that anymore. And then we fell back a little bit. And then what happened was very quickly, we we had passed the automated transactions was higher than we had the number we had ever hit at, at the where we had sort of the manual service part where we were learning and failing and figuring things out and fixing and then doing it again. So we got that right, and that worked very well. The other big learning we learned was, you know, if you go to the, think the CFO, they're called RevCycle Managers. There's whole organizations within hospitals to figure this stuff out. But if you go to them and say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to improve your efficiencies. I'm going to cut your costs. They'll be like, yeah, sign me up. Where do I sign? This is a huge problem. Prior auth costs us mountains of time and money. So they are like, yeah. Well, here's the thing. When you get down to the person who's going to use it, who's been doing it this same way for 10 years, yeah, you got a little hurdle. And so we had a lot of people that we did not overcome their hurdle unless we were, in fact, offering value. And it made it life easier for them. And it fit into the processes that they already had. They would basically use prior auth now for about a hot minute. And then they would go back to what they were doing previously. And we saw it. 
we actually could predict exactly what was going to occur. Meanwhile, we were fixing why that occurred. And so now we do not see that. But you can't take your eye off the ball. Your experience lives at the person who's using it, not at the person who's saying, yeah, yeah, great, I'm going to save some money, perfect. They're going to approve. So we didn't have a hard time getting into, again, very large organizations and for them to say, yes, I will approve that. Yeah, because the value proposition was easy, undeniable. Yes, right, and such a big problem. In fact, I, I promise you, you could walk out now and ca- talk to any five random practices that you drove by and they would tell you this is one of their top three problems so that was undeniable what we were running into is we hadn't quite solved the value proposition for the person who had to process that stuff every day of the week yeah and how do you guys how do you guys charge is there um to some degree not that this is a great long-term strategy, mm-hmm. but if you've got a contract with that provider and they've already subscribed, licensed, you know, et cetera, and the person actually processing the pre-authorizations isn't using it, you've already you've got the contract in place. The money's changing hands, yeah. right? But I'm assuming that the person actually using it matters financially to you is from the way that you're set up from a business model perspective. In addition to the fact, the long-term risk that if they ultimately go back to that person and say, mm-hmm. "Hey, are you using this? Do you like it? You know, is this good?" that they ultimately, you know, might not retain as as a customer. Yeah. So, good questions. We started the way that you said. So we would we were charging a per prior authorization transaction fee for the most part. And then we would just get revenue based on how much you used it. It didn't matter what the decision was. So we're, we're not incented one way or the other. We're just helping you to get the prior authorization to be efficient and easy to do. And so that seemed to make sense. But then we realized that this was about getting market share. Um, and we had been able to see folks who had done it. The best example I would give you is Cover My Meds. They did not charge at all. So their their business models to get revenue from other locations, and we wrestled with that because you know there's kind of a how you're going to get capital, how do you grow the company, what's the right thing to do, but then it became very evident to us that we were better off solving the problem and getting critical mass to have leverage because remember that problem that you said you got to go here and then here, you're incrementing on both sides, but it turns out with the payers, the insurance companies, critical mass is your leverage and there's nothing else. And so if you don't get there quick enough, you're just really not going to become a really interesting big company. And so we decided both as a board, um, so the investors were all in on this, and as a company, we decided to go to a, we do not charge for the transaction. We make money basically from two different groups of folks uh, believe it or not, we have drug manufacturers on our side too. So think where it's administered in the doctor's office. So if they give you a shot or they give you an, an infusion of medication that takes place in the office, then that actually stays on the medical benefits side. That makes that, sense. That's a substantial portion of drugs usage administered in America. That's different than prescription where it's administered outside of the uh, the physician's office. So we also focused on that, and you can apply the same model, meaning 
the drug manufacturers. You can also go to device manufacturers. They're more than happy to reward you for making life easier for the use of their medications in this example or their medical devices in that example as well. So it turns out that there's lots of money to be made there. And then the other thing is if you, dr if you drive down the costs and you drive up the efficiencies on the healthcare insurance company side, they're glad to reward you as well. But both of those things are predicated upon having critical mass. So otherwise, that sounds good if I'm Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, but until you're like a significant portion, I'm not really going to start taking my resources to prioritize to get those cost savings. So what became clear is we should continue to do what we're doing by driving with the provider first, but we should go ahead and lower the barrier. So we did, and we went to a model. This is very much our West Coast model, uh, but it's weird for the Midwest, as you might imagine. But it says, I'm going to go after market share, and I'm willing to pay because it's going to be capital intensive first to get that market share. But what's going to happen is much faster. I'm going to be big and have leverage to go after the revenue stream that I'm going after. So don't get me wrong. We really like revenue. But what um, is driving us at this moment in time is really the growth of transactions for prior authorization so that we're really a significant uh, market share. Yeah, that makes sense. Good to see you, my friend. Um, Great to catch up. Yeah, it's uh, always good to get together and, and talk about product and the process and the trials and tribulations of you know trying to do this as the flawed creatures that we are. <laughs> yes, it's amazing the learnings that I still get. And again, I've been at it for a long time. So I try not to repeat the mistakes. So I think generally that's the value that I offer to the world. I usually don't do the same dumb thing twice, but uh, it's amazing how things change. By the way, one of the things that you're asking is the fundamentals are largely the same, but the tools are really better nowadays. Oh, goodness, yes. It's crazy. We can be so much more efficient and productive. So we can go Absolutely. and move so much faster. That's right? the big change that think, I've seen over the years. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, and I think that, that – I think sometimes, though, we end up um, – getting a little bit um some mixed signals around since the tools are better mm -hmm. that somehow the tools replace the fundamentals right right oh, great great call out you know they or, do not or methodologies right because you know agile became you know thing and you know lean startup lean startup is you know there were no epiphanies in lean startup right, right. it's right. it's get and stay close to your your customers <laughs> yeah. iterate you know, frequently, sure. right? Make sure you're doing validation properly. Right. You're not every, you don't take every time someone goes, mm, maybe I like it as going, holy shit, they love it. They're going to buy it. Right. right. And so, and that's why I, w I was interested to get your uh, perspective on fundamentals since yeah. you've been doing this yeah, for, yeah. you know, more than a couple of minutes. Yep. Um, but I do think that we sometimes look at tools and methodologies and processes yep. and then somehow we think that that changes the fundamentals yes. or makes it it makes it easier. I think it makes it marginally easier that we can move faster and we can work more efficiently and yep. collaborate better. But I think the fundamentals are the fundamentals. We're completely aligned. That's really the message, which is learning those things is hard. It takes a lot of time and experience, and it's useful to find people with that who have put in that time and experience in the fundamentals. But the tools get better and better all the time. 
and it's worthwhile to go and find the tools that are going to make you more efficient for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Well, again, thank you for joining me, Mike. You bet. This Enjoyed has been uh, Mike Blackwell from Prior Auth Now, and I'm Ryan Frederick from AWH. This has been uh, Beyond the Roadmap, a podcast about building products. We will see you next time. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at awhnet to learn more.